eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED lights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This is the Ed Milet Show. Hey, welcome back to the show, everybody. Today is going to be a really enlightening day for so many of you because when I read this man's book, it was for me. And so I'm really, really honored to be able to share his thoughts with you. Daniel Pink is my guest today, five times New York Times bestselling author. But guys, by the way, that is not an easy thing to do. And five times, this will be six probably. And I got to tell you, uh, his background is so diverse and fascinating. We may be able to get into that a little bit. But the book that he wrote is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. And when I first heard the title of the book, I was telling Daniel, I go, ah, I'm not having him on. I don't think I agree with the premise of this thing at all. And then I started to read it, and it's groundbreaking work. It's stuff you've never heard before. So if you've got any regrets in your life, or maybe you've been told before, don't ever look back because then you're not looking forward. I think you'll find out that maybe some of that advice may be contrary to what Daniel will share with you and now really what I believe. So Daniel, welcome to the show. Ed, thanks so much for having me. Oh man, this is so thanks great. For t and thanks for taking time to push past the, your skepticism. I appreciate that. Well, I, I told you I read the book cover to cover. I read it in a day and a half and it is a great book, everybody. And hey, I have to tell you because there's so many things in there that about framing and regret and that I just really had never thought about before. So let's start first of all with your overall premise. Why is regret not such a bad thing? Well, because, um, because regret is a human thing uh, more than anything else. Uh, everybody has regrets. Um, it is our, one of our most common emotions of any kind. It's arguably our most common negative emotion. Uh, and even though I don't like regret, even though it's painful, you have to wonder why is something that is so kind of unpleasant so pervasive? And the answer is because it's useful if we treat it right. And that's the problem. Just as you were saying at the top, Ed, that that this advice that we should never have regrets is nonsense. The advice that we should never look back is nonsense. The advice that we should always be positive is nonsense. What we need to do is get past this false courage of saying no regrets and actually demonstrate real courage by looking our regrets in the eye and doing something about them. And, and the science tells us how to do that. Well, that's the thing. I love you. I love that you said the word science because that's the book is really not just some philosophy. No, There's no. Psychology. I don't have any. I don't have any philosophy. I look at the evidence. Yeah, yeah, and we and it's a it's almost this conversion you say in the book of like biology, psychology, neuroscience, all in one. And it's I think it's more the way in which we look back and the processes through which we do it, the filter, the lens, how we process the information is what you really share in the book. So there's he does these two significant studies that he quotes in the book that are really fascinating about regret, the American Regret Project, which is an interesting name for a study. And then the World Regret Survey, it's like 16,000 people in 105 countries. And what you uncover in this thing is that there's basically like four human regrets overall. Why don't you share with us what those are? Sure thing, yeah, yeah. Then thanks for mentioning those pieces of research because again, you know, I do think, you know, I said at the top, like how I appreciate you're pushing past the skepticism. Mm -hmm. And I think that when, when anybody makes a claim about anything um, in any of our books, you know, the books that you write or the books that I write or anything, um, you have to, I think you want to approach it with generous skepticism and, and say, how do you know? You know, you're making this thing, how do you know? 
And so what I, the reason I know this is because I've done, I looked at about 60 years of science and all those fields that you mentioned. I also did this piece of research called the American Regret Project, which is the largest public opinion survey of American attitudes of regret ever conducted. And I also collected a lot of regrets in this World Regret Project. Um, in fact, we're now over, amazingly, we're now over 19,000 regrets from 109 countries. So it's crazy. Wow. And, so, and so anyway, with that as a backdrop, let me tell you what I found is that um, I and others had initially looked at what people regret by looking at the areas of life in which they occurred. So I have a career regret. I have an education regret. I have a health regret. And what I found, as you said, is, is something deeper going on underneath. So it, the World Regret Survey, the, the qualitative piece where I've collected just this amazing number of regrets, I found that over and over again around the world, people had the same four regrets. So let me quickly go through them. One, foundation regrets. If only I'd done the work. These are people who regret, who made small bad decisions early that accumulated into bad consequences later on. Smoking, uh, not so much in the United States, but elsewhere. Um, um, uh, bad health decisions, other bad health decisions. Not working hard enough in school. A lot of people who spend too much and save too little. Mm. That's foundation. Second, boldness regrets, big category. Yeah. If only I'd taken the chance. These are people who didn't ask out somebody on a date 20 mm. years ago, still yep. bugs them. People who didn't start a business, people who didn't speak up, people who didn't travel. That's wow. boldness regrets. Third category, moral regrets. Small category, but really interesting and really painful to people, which is, if only I'd done the right thing. These are people who bullied, who cheated on their spouse, who cheated a business partner, who hurt other people. Fourth category, connection regrets. If only I'd reached out. These are about relationships, um, all kinds of relationships, not only romantic relationships, in fact, mostly not romantic relationships, just the full suite of relationships that we have in our lives that come apart. People want to reach out. They don't because they think it's going to be awkward. And then they then the relationship drifts apart even more and then they regret it even more. And sometimes it's too late. And so those are the four things over and over again. It's remarkable at around the world that people seem to regret. Yeah. And when you look back, you say that use the word counterfactuals. Yeah. In the book. And uh, it stood out to me because essentially what I think, I want you to elaborate on that, but you yeah. have these things where you talk about at least and if oh. only. That's one way to process it, which I think is a tool for everybody to hear right now. But also you basically say that sometimes we're telling ourselves a story that never even actually happened. Oh, and, and so completely. This is fascinating to me because I completely agree with you. Well, no, but but I mean, what you're what you're what you're what you're getting at is just how freaking amazing our brains are. Yeah. I mean, the ability to even if you think about it, the ability to the ability to regret something requires incredible mental cognitive dexterity and speed and muscularity. It's one reason why, say, five year olds don't experience regret because um, their brains haven't developed enough. It's, a, it's also why people with certain kinds of brain lesions, brain lesions in the orbital frontal cortex that disturbs their ability to do this kind of thinking, certain kinds of, uh, and it's sometimes Huntington's patients and Parkinson's patients show the same thing. And so our brains are kind of amazing if you think about what regret does, and, and it will, we'll get to counterfactual thinking. So think about just what regret is. Let's say that I regret, um, let, let's, uh, let's not make it me. Let's, let's, take, let's take somebody who regrets um, not starting a business and okay. staying in a lackluster job. Okay. So then let's call her Maria. So Maria, uh, so what does Maria do to have that regret? First of all, she goes back in time. She gets in her time machine in her head. Beep. She zips back in time yeah. to 
maybe 10 years ago when she was contemplating starting a business. And now she didn't really start a business, so she's going to negate what really happened. She's going to do something counter to the facts there. All right? So she does that. That's an incredible form of storytelling right there. It's like, I'm going to pretend that what really happened didn't happen and the opposite happened. But even more than that, I'm going to get back in my time machine, beep, zip back to the present and realize that the present is now reconfigured because of what I just did in the imagined past. It's crazy. You know, and so counterfactual thinking is a big part of how we how we think, how we process in the world. And as you say, there are these two types of counterfactual thinking. One of them is what's called a a downward counterfactual. A downward counterfactual is imagining how things could have been better. I like to call those, as you say, and at, at, at least. Um, and so this is why, for instance, bronze medalists are happier than silver medalists. Yes. Because bronze medalists say, oh, at least I didn't, I'm so pumped, I finished third, at least I didn't finish fourth like that schmo over there who didn't even get a medal. Yeah. Right? So that's, so, so at least, the thing about at least, downward counterfactuals at least, at least make us feel better. Right. And so so I, I took this terrible job, but at least I made some money. They make us feel better. Um, and that's OK. If only are the other are the other way, the other form of counterfactual thinking where we, we do an upward counterfactual. We imagine, again, a world that runs counter to the facts where things are better. Um, and if o- that's if only I had started that business and if only make us feel worse. But here's the thing. If only's make us do better if we treat them right. At least make us feel better, but they don't really help us do better. Hmm. If only's help us make us feel worse and make us do better. In fact, they make us do better in large part because they make us feel worse, because that feeling worse is a signal that something has gone awry. Okay, this is part of the brilliant part of the work. I'll get the ages wrong probably, but you do say in the book that, you know, five-year-olds haven't developed the ability to do it, but they're like seven or so, I think they actually begin to have the ability to anticipate regret. Yeah. And this is fascinating to me because this part of, you know, the the looking back and the if onlys, but you you make a really great point that regret is healthy in the sense that if you begin to anticipate it, it may cause you to take different actions in the present. So let's go Absolutely. That's huge. Absolutely. That's a, that's a huge part of it. That is, again, that this is this is our time machine goes in multiple directions, right? So what we can do is we can we can look forward and try to anticipate our regrets. Now, there's a lot of good research on this and 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 it's tricky because a lot of times we're not that good at forecasting. We're not that good at, we're particularly not very good at forecasting for ourselves. Uh, and so anticipating our regrets is a generally a good idea, but it can go awry. We have to actually put some guardrails up there. So for instance, uh, let me give you an example that I, that I, that it still drives me nuts that people don't realize this, which is multiple choice tests. All right, multiple choice tests. So let's say you're taking a multiple choice test and you're on number seven and you say, okay, number answer is C on number seven. Then you go along da, 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 and you're on number 11 or 12 and you're like, wait a second, I think the answer to number seven might be A, not C. Yeah. Do you switch your answer? Now, we have evidence on this. We have facts, okay? Again, how do you know? On this one, we have evidence okay. that you're, not every time, obviously, but in general, in general, you are better off switching your answer. You're better off are, switching. You're, you're always better off, not always. I mean, just as a, as a matter of percentages, people are more likely to switch from a wrong answer to a right answer than they are to switch from a right answer to a wrong answer. But people don't do that. Why? 
because they anticipate the deep regret they'll feel if they switch from a right answer to a wrong answer. And that deep regret that they anticipate is less than the regret they anticipate from sticking with a wrong answer. And so they do the suboptimal thing because they're not good at forecasting their, their regrets. Anyway, that said, so we got to be careful about this. That said, there's another issue here too. And forgive me for this preamble, but it'll make some sense yeah. once we get to the payoff. We can't anticipate every regret. That's, you'll, we'll drive ourselves bonkers doing that. You know, so I can't say, oh my gosh, what shirt should I put on today? Should I put on my blue shirt or should I put on my green shirt? Which will I regret more? Um, what should I have for what should I have for lunch? Should I have a tuna salad sandwich or a quesadilla? Which will I regret more? There's there's some interesting research on what are what's called maximizing and satisfying. That when we make decisions, some people want to maximize every decision. I want the best hamburger. I want the best person to mow my lawn. I want the I want the, the, the best color car. Mm. And if you maximize every decision, that is almost a guaranteed recipe for being miserable. Mm. Maximizers are miserable because you can't maximize everything. Yeah. You're always going to fall short. And you're exerting a huge amount of mental and psychic energy when every decision feels urgent and cataclysmic. Mm. So what you're better off doing is what's called, on certain things, is what's called satisfying, which is just good enough. And, and so in some ways, I think, that, that in some ways, the lesson of life, because we know maximizers are miserable and yes. satisficers are often happier, is you gotta figure out in life, what do you maximize on and what do you satisfice on? Mm -hmm. and, and I think that you maximize on a very small number of things. And here we go, here's where regret teaches us. We can make a pretty safe bet that the me of 10 years from now, anticipating my regrets, so we're going to talk to we're going to talk to me in 2032. We're going to make a phone call to me in 2032 and say, "Hey, what are you regretting right now?" I think the odds are zero that I will regret anything about what I had for lunch today. I think the odds are zero. Very good. The odds are zero that I will regret buying a blue car or, or a gray car or a green car, whatever. But I think we can make a very safe bet that I will regret some of the things we talked about. I will regret if I do something today that is the wrong thing to do, that is I hurt somebody or I do something immoral, I will regret playing it too safe and not taking a, a sensible risk. I will regret not reaching out to someone. And, and it's like you maximize on those things as you anticipate your regrets. Try to avoid your connection regrets and your boldness regrets and your moral regrets and just freaking chill out and satisfy and everything else. It's so good. I do use the, as you just, I was reading the book, I'm like, I might do this more than the normal person. This huh. whole in process. what way? I think it's healthy to anticipate regret. I think everything is regret in context. Yeah. So I have this overall context. Whatever your faith is, I'm a Christian, but whatever your faith is, when I pass away, I have this vision, this belief system that I'm going to meet the ultimate version of me, the destiny version of me, the guy who could have had the moments, the contribution, the memories, the emotions in his life. And I want to meet that guy. And so when I make decisions, I often process it because I'll regret if I don't become that guy. Okay. Does making this decision move me closer to this person? Will I regret not making this choice or taking this action because ultimately it will put me closer to this person? Or will I regret this choice, this action, this decision, and it will move me further away from getting to this person? So I think oftentimes processing regret through the right context matters. My outcome is to meet that ultimate version of me, that destiny version of me. And so through that outcome and that context, 
I now make my choices and decisions based out of the regret one way or the other. Is it going to get me there or move me further away? Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. It's actually a really smart idea. It's really it's fascinating, actually, um, Ed, in, in that one of the things that we know about decision making and, and, and problem solving is that when we try to make decisions for ourselves or solve problems for ourselves, we're generally pretty bad at it. And in some ways, we're, 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 we're too enmeshed in the details. And so there's a lot of research on what's called self-distancing, which is where you zoom out. And what you're describing here is, a, is, a, is actually, it's one I haven't heard of before, but it's, a, it's actually a brilliant self-distancing technique, is sort of imagine meeting yourself. You're, you're sort of, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're sort of imagine, you're self-distancing. It, it's similar, it's like a first cousin of, the, of talking to the you of 2032. Yes. But, but what you're doing here is actually even more interesting because you're, you're traveling into the future, but you're also talking to, in some ways, the ideal version of yourself. Very well said. Uh, and distancing. I'd love that terminology. Okay. So. Well, that's the key. That's the key. And so, you know, we, we're terrible at solving our own problems. And this is this is why when we deal with it, when we deal with our regrets, especially when we try to extract lessons from them, we're better off taking a we're better off taking a, a, a step back. So even things like, you know, when we're deciding what to do with regard to our regret, you know. Uh, for you saying, you know, instead of saying, what should I do? You should say, what should Ed do? You know, use, yes. use language to self-distance. Okay, that was um, big there, right there. That's big right there alone. There's a, it's that, that, listen, that, that's actually helpful. And there's a lot of research behind that. There's some really good stuff on, on how if you're making a decision, um, ask yourself, what would I tell my best friend to do? Yeah. And a lot of times when people are stuck making a decision, if they say, what would you tell your best friend to do? They know immediately. Yeah. Um, because there, there, uh, there's a great business technique. Uh, Andy Grove used it, the former head of um, former CEO of Intel, used this technique where he was stuck on a decision, and he would say, "Okay, again, his self distancing technique. What would my successor do?" And in that case, he almost always knew. And so, yeah. along these, those lines, would you elaborate yeah. on that? There's you have a thing in there on Bezos. Yeah, it's something he does with regret that's pretty powerful. Well, what it's Bezos had, what, what Bezos had is Bezos had the regret minimization principle, where he says that what you should do in making you should make your decisions based on minimizing your future regrets, and that's right to a point. But yeah. you can't minimize every single regret, all right? Because then you drive yourself nuts. What you should be doing, so I, I think of it as regret optimization. So what you should be doing is you should be making forward-thinking decisions to minimize these core regrets, the things we know most human beings are going to regret, not establishing a stable foundation, not taking a smart risk and growing and learning, not doing the right thing, and not connecting to others. And the rest of the stuff, I mean, truly, it doesn't matter. If you think about I mean, just think about this. How many decisions you make in a day and, um, and then go back 10 years from now, go back to whatever it is, you know, we're talking in March of 2022. Yep. So imagine March of 2012, the same, you know, imagine a single day and a random day in March of, of 2012, how many decisions you made that day. And my guess is that you don't remember any of them. That's so true. <laughs> All right. But the ones that you will remember are the ones that actually affect these big four um, concerns. Big four is huge. And then you, uh, the, the, some of these surveys, one of them, one of the big categories, I'm not talking about the college one either. The other one is like romantic ones are often huge regrets for people later in life or ones that are significant. Overall, generally speaking, do people regret more things they did that they wish they didn't do or things they didn't do? Meaning uh, not asking someone out, fighting for a relationship when it was broken up, you know, not making that investment. Overall, which one is more uh, prevalent? 
when we're young, there are, we have about equal numbers of action regrets and inaction regrets. Okay. But once we hit about 30, in our 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, action regrets totally take over. Action regrets, I'm sorry, inaction regrets totally take over. Yeah. Inaction regrets are typically double action regrets. And so we're much, in general, we are much more likely to regret what we didn't do than what we did do. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. Yeah. You say in the book, just looking at this right now, it just made me, it flashed me. I Parts of the book I'm like drawing on. You know, that's how I know that's for me, the part of the book that stands out the most. And you say that there's basically three options. This is big guys right here. If you're driving, it's like pull over and write it down. If you're on the treadmill, <laughs> mark this thing right here, right? But there's three options for responding to regret. And I'll let you kind of go there because I think this is awesome. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I, I think there's a there's a process by which you can you can deal with your regrets. And so and this is actually important at a, at a broad level. Here's the thing. I don't I don't want to go crazy here. Because I don't want to go overboard here because regret, just to be very clear, regret does not feel good. OK, mm -hmm. it's, it's a negative emotion. It's never going to it's never going to feel great. It's always going to feel uncomfortable, if not. Yeah. Painful. Painful. And and so the question that becomes, what do you do with that? So a lot of us just ignore it. And that's a bad idea. There's no growth there. But some of us actually get debilitated by it and we wallow in it. We ruminate in it. We actually luxuriate in it. That's an even worse idea. What you want to do is you want to think about it. And, and, and the problem is, is that most of us haven't been taught how to do that systematically. And so to me, the way I look at this now is, is that we should have a kind of a three-step process. Inward, outward, forward. Inward, outward, forward. So inward, you should, is, is how you reframe yourself and your regret. Um, we should, and basically the, the, the TLDR here is treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. The self-talk that we use, the way we talk to ourselves is absurd. So we are brutal yeah. and cruel in talking to ourselves. If we talk to anybody else, if we were in, a, in an organization and talk to other people the way we talk to ourselves, we would be fired. So All true. Right? So true. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. So the solution there is don't do that. Instead, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. This is something called self-compassion. Recognize that your mistakes are part of the human condition and that any mistake that you make is, is just a moment in your life, not the full definition from your life. So that's the inward look, okay. outward look. There's a lot to be said for disclosure. Uh, disclosure is an unburdening. Uh, we fear that disclosure, disclosing our regrets and vulnerabilities will make people think less of it, less of us. We have 30 years of behavioral science showing that in general, people think more of us for disclosing our vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. um, and the other important thing is that when we, when we take our regrets and talk about them and write about them, we're converting this blobby emotional abstraction into concrete words. And those are less fearsome, and that helps us make sense of it. So that's, and then finally, we were talking about before, you got to extract a lesson from it. And the way you do that is you take a step back and, and you think about who the person you're going to be, what the person in, you're going to be in 10 years wants to do. Yep. You think about what you tell your best friend to do. You talk to yourself in the third person. You think about what your successor would do, any of those things. And so when we do that, it's not that hard. It becomes a habit. And so these regrets, the thing about it, at some level, what, what pisses me off is that we've sort of been sold a bill of goods where we say the way, the effective blueprint for living is to never look backward and to say you have no regrets. 
And that's a bad idea. It's not bad philosophically. I mean, I, I think it is bad philosophically, but it's bad not because it's bad philosophically. It's bad because it runs against what 60 years of science tells us. Yeah. 60 years of science tells us that everybody has regrets and that done right, regrets can help us make better decisions, become better negotiators, become better strategists, become better problem solvers, become better parents, and find greater meaning in our life. And so, when, so, so anybody who proclaims no regrets is sort of saying, no learning, no growth. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you call it in the book, you call it, I think, disclosure, compassion, and distance is like the three terms that you use to describe right. what you just have. Right, exactly, exactly. Self-compassion is how do you treat yourself. Um, self-disclosure is sort of the unburdening. And then self-distancing is what we talked about before. It's how you extract a lesson from it. I worry about people looking back in the sense that I think there's two types of people that look back. It's not just the regret. I think you can become a, a, a regret, avoid, risk, uh, obsessed, which is probably an unhealthy thing. But I think it's the people who go back that just keep replaying the same version of the story repetitively and don't do what you've said. They've extracted no lessons. The past is important because there's lessons in it, right? Exactly. And then the other, then there's the other person who's like, they replay the story of their highlight from high school football you know, over and over. So brother, you're 40 years old. Let's get out of that past and let's get a vision for the future. So I think sometimes it's not looking back in, in this sense is very healthy, looking back and just living there all the time. No way. I think is where that comes from. There's something really instructive in the book for me though. And so, because if you know them in advance, it helps you make the decision. If you know these five things in advance, it's sort of, they become flags when you see them in front of you. Exactly. So you call them the five sins of regret, right? This is big, guys, because when you hear Daniel describe some of them, you can do all of them, brother, whatever you want. You go, yeah, that's one. But for me, I'm like, I'm now sort of, this is sort of in my reticular activating system a little bit. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm seeing these five things now. As I, did, I read the book about a week ago. And I've already, I've been in a couple situations where I'm like, that's sort of one of the five sins of regret right there. And it like stood out to me because it's such a healthy thing to sort of govern choices and behavior. So what are the five sins? Well, this is, has to do with moral regrets. And yes. one of the things about moral regrets is interesting is that like, like you and I and, and your listeners probably have a consensus about that, that, um, that that saving money instead of spending it frivolously is a good right. is a better way to build your foundation. All right, most of us have an idea that starting a business is bolder than staying in a lackluster job. But when it comes to moral, we don't have a consensus. We have some we have some consensus. Most of us agree that you shouldn't harm other people, you shouldn't treat other people. But there are other aspects of morality that we don't have full consensus on. And and what we have to and so for instance, I'll give you an example of this. So I have a lot of people, um, Americans who who regret not serving in the military. And the reason they regret not serving in the military is not because they missed the adventure, but because they felt like I didn't have, like I had a duty as a patriot to serve and I didn't do that and I let that down. There's some people who think that's not a real moral regret and those people are wrong. It might not be their moral regret, but it is a moral regret. Sure. And, so, and so we have that. There are other people in other cultures who think about, um, you know, they, 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 they feel like they have an incredible duty to their parents in a way that many Westerners don't feel. Sure. All right. Are those people wrong or right? I don't. I, they're that they're them. All right. It's like that's their moral code. Uh, we even have to just to make things even not controversial at all. Um, I have some women in the database who regret having an abortion. 
And so we have different views in America, especially we have very divided views on that. Sure. There's some people who would say, well, that's not a moral regret. And, and I would say to them, I'm sorry, you don't get to decide what other people's moral regrets are. Correct. Um, Correct. We get to decide. And, and so moral regrets are complicated. They, um, and now, again, in most of the moral regrets that I accumulated, they mostly dealt with that, those areas of, of, of harm and cheating, Har hurting somebody else, cheating somebody else. One of the things that we have to understand, I, I think it goes way beyond regret, is that when you look at one person's version of what's moral, it's not going to map perfectly to someone else's version of what's moral, and that's okay. It yeah. doesn't mean that one side is a bad person or anything like that. It just means that we have different, as John Haidt puts it in his book, The Righteous Mind, different moral taste buds. And, um, and I really encourage your, your, your listeners to read this book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, um, which really talks about um, it even talks about how we make moral decisions. The way that we think we make moral decisions is not how we really make moral decisions. Mm -hmm. When we're deciding certain kinds of moral decisions, like, um, like do you believe in, um, you know, I mean, abortion is one, um, same-sex marriage is another one. Mm -hmm. We'd sure. like to th we like to think that we weigh the pros and cons and then like a judge and then come up with a verdict. That's not it. We make an emotional, visceral decision immediately and then use reason to justify those emotional <laughs> decisions yeah, of the five the one that stood out for me was disloyalty yeah. and i'm not talking about disloyalty like in a romantic relationship yeah this is the thing that stood out for me how often do you at some point in your life regret a form of disloyalty meaning even gossip about a friend when they're not present there you go i Things mean like this that are we do have a consensus on almost nobody would tell you it's a good thing to gossip about a friend when they're not present or to speak ill of somebody at any point, particularly not in their presence. And we are all constantly put into situations. See, when, I think a lot of people think we regret there's these biggies. Oh my gosh, I got a divorce and I could have saved my marriage. Those are biggies, but there's the day to day. Yeah. And, this, and the, you talked about your self-talk. I have a philosophy about this. You know, when you're doing something that you shouldn't do. And every time you do that, it steals a little bit of your identity. It steals a mm. little bit of your self-worth. Mm. And being aware of these situations, that you're doing these little cuts that are things you regret as you're doing them, steal something about you that believes you're worthy and deserve to be happy, successful, and blissful. And so what you give in the book are these seven techniques you won't regret. So this is sort of how you deal with this stuff, right? Oh yeah, there are all kinds of like, yeah, there's like, so, so I mean, so we have this method, you know, it's awesome. three steps, but there are other kinds of things that I think are very super useful. I'll tell you one, I'll tell you one of my favorites and it's my favorite because I've done it and can testify to the, it can testify to its virtues. Uh, one of my favorites is a, is a failure resume. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, is, yeah, it's awesome. This is an idea from Tina Selig at Stanford and here's what it is. So all of us have resumes or you know um, LinkedIn profiles or whatever, and our resumes are just these incredible accomplishments. You know, list of how all of our accomplishments and achievements and accolades and things like that. A failure resume is the flip side of that, where you list for yourself. You can share it with others. I've only done it for myself, where you can you list all of your failures, your screw ups, your missteps, your blunders, all that kind of stuff. And what I do, the way I do it, is this. So I list that all in one column, and then in the second column. I list what's the lesson I learned from that. And then the third column, I list what I'm going to do about it. Now, that second column for me was a revelation because here's what happened. I would list certain kinds of mistakes and screw ups and things like that and look for the lesson. And sometimes here's the thing. There isn't a lesson. Mm. Things don't work out. Mm. There's bad luck. Mm. 
nothing you can do about it. <laughs> right. That's life, you know. And so, and so, that's actually really helpful to understand that it now, sure because because it because it, it lets you understand where it actually was your fault, where where your decisions mm. were the cause of the of the problem. And for me, when I looked at that, I realized that I was making the t- same two mistakes over and over and over again. And um, and this helped me prevent making those mistakes as all, uh, m- most of those mistakes again. Well, I think a perfect example of that is uh, my dad passed away about a year ago. I really regret that my dad passed away. That's not something that I did or caused. No. I still have regret. And I, but what it does do is I look back at that relationship is I'm, I do evaluate how did I treat him? Was I loyal to him? These other things that you have in the book. Yeah. Seventh thing you teach in the seven things you won't regret to deal with it. I just want you to elaborate on this because I don't think, I think what you just said about, hey, not everything happens for a lesson to come out of it, is that you should, the seventh one, adopt a journey mindset. Yeah. And I think that's important because when you go back and hyper-focus on a particular event, the context of it can be really magnified compared to the entire journey that you're on. So elaborate on that a little bit. Well, this is from drawn from the work of Jennifer Auker at Stanford. And, and what she has found, and I think a lot of us have had this experience, is that let's say you're driving toward a goal, you're pushing toward a goal, and you achieve the goal. And about 45 seconds after achieving the goal, you're like, oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and then... <laughs> Uh, and, and so like, what's going on there? And what's going on there is that in some ways we're over-indexing on the destination and under-indexing on the journey. That would really ma- and, and so what you see sometimes is when, once people hit their goal, hit a particular goal, they lose all future motivation. Not all future motivation, but they lose a lot of future motivation so they don't sustain that high performance. And what you're better off doing is thinking about your work as a journey where the, the purpose is the, the trip itself. The purpose is getting a little bit better and actually sustaining your focus because you want to sustain your focus. There's, a, there's another sort of related idea uh, from the work of, a guy wrote this book maybe 40 years ago, a guy named James Kars, who wrote this book called Finite and Infinite Games that I always think about. And, and his view is this, is that a, there are two kinds of games. A finite game, the goal is to win. An infinite game, the goal is to keep playing. And what you want is that the people who are happiest in life itself is an infinite game. Life is not a game you can win. Mm. It's, it's much more complicated than that. But life is a game that you want to keep playing because of its inherent joy and satisfaction and the contribution that you can make. And so this is another way of, it's, a, it's, another, way of, it's another way of thinking about that. What would you say to somebody who says, uh, I don't, I, you know, I think you'd be concerned about this too, that, the uh, validating somebody who regularly lives in regret and doesn't do it the way that you described. They don't frame things correctly. They're not taking lessons from it. They're not extracting different things and they live there. And maybe they're saying, you know what, I, I, I'm, I'm stuck here. And how do I move? Is it, is it, are you changing the frame? The yeah. questions they ask themselves. So there's a lot of people particularly yeah. right now, context of the world, like, you know, why would someone, every single day want to get better because maybe yeah. they're at a point in their life like hey i just really regret where i'm at i thought i'd be further yeah. along i regret this yeah. choice I, well, and they yeah. just live there what would you say to them yeah i mean i think what we should do for them is you know it, it's it's a great question you know 
I think what we have to do is, is empathize with them a little bit because I think the reason they're stuck there is that no one taught them how to deal with negative emotions. No one taught them enough how to, what to do. And so I think that in some level, I think they need some coaching. I think they need some coaching in how to do these three steps. So, and the first thing that I would tell them is, is a little bit of tough love, which is that you're not that special. All right, you, you have these regrets, but let me show you these 19,000 regrets I've, I've collected from around the world. A lot of people have these regrets. So this, doesn't, this is not some kind of final judgment on you. This is, a, this is part of the human experience, and you have a choice about whether you wanna to respond to this human experience by wallowing and giving up, or by taking some small steps to do a little bit better. And so I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think you have to make those small steps somewhat, um, somewhat easier on them. And so well, this is another reason why I think it's important yeah. for leaders and friends to talk about their regrets. One of the things that got me interested in this topic, Ed, was that um, I started thinking about my own regrets, very sheepishly mentioned them to a few people and found that my mentioning my regrets to them opened the floodgates. They wanted to talk about their regrets. They weren't boohooing it. They just wanted to have an honest adult conversation about it. And so, so, so just letting people, you know, treating people with kindness, recognizing that they're that that they're not that special because everybody has regrets, and then you know just helping them make sense of it and try to do one small thing to make things a little bit better. Um, but I think that the kind of people you're talking about need some coaching. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're unlikely to do it on their own. They need a friend or a spouse or a boss or a colleague to help coach them out of it. Yeah, and I and I'll stick the book can coach them out of it. I mean, you won't. Yeah, I hope. It, yeah, I will. There's a bunch of stuff in there. I say one other thing to people that live in regret. I think the fact that you process regret and experience regret, I think most people don't give themselves credit for it. This is a great indicator of the caliber of person you are. That you're a good person. That you deserve to be successful. The fact of the matter is, sociopaths process no regret. They don't feel bad about any choice or decision or harm they've caused somebody. So the process, the presence of regret in your life is a screaming indicator you're a good person and that you deserve to be happy and successful. The lack of any regret, this is, this is someone who's sociopathic and that's not who you wanna be. And so just remember this, the fact that you're processing regret is a tremendous indicator that you're a great person and that you deserve bliss, success, happiness, whatever it is your outcome is. The only thing I have to add to that is a single word, which is amen. Yeah, amen, right, everybody? Yeah. I, I just, I just no, it's exactly, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, the, and the, the absence of, of regrets, like people who don't have, like truly, if you don't have regrets, it's a sign of a, it's often a sign of a grave problem. It's a sign that you could literally have a brain injury. It's a sign that you could have a neurodegenerative disorder. It's a sign that you could be a sociopath. True. And No, but I gotta tell you, I have a couple of people that I thought were friends of mine and I've, be, I've really started to wonder because when I've watched them harm others or make poor life decisions Ooh, for themselves uh -huh. and they process no regret from it, uh, which, which by the way, no regret means no growth, no change bingo, at all. And I'm some of these folks who I really valued their friendship over time, I'm starting to question their connection with me. Not even things they've done to me, other people, choices they've made. Like, man, you, you keep repeating this pattern because you don't regret it and you're devoid of emotion about it. I think good people experience regret. I agree with you. I think that moral regrets are somewhat heartening. I kind of like the idea that people are bothered by that they bullied somebody three decades ago. I yeah. think it suggests that they know right and wrong and that they want to be, and they want to do the right thing. 
And so in some ways, in some ways, these things are in some ways, these things are very heartening. And, and what I say, you know, as you know, from the book is that, you know, these four core regrets that I write about, I think, operate as a photographic negative of the good life. That is all these people who are telling me what they what they regret most are also telling me what they value most, what matters most to them and what matters to them. Foundation, some stability, boldness, learning and growth, moral goodness. I think most people want to be good and that a good life is a life where you are actually being good. And then connection, uh, which is love. And, and once again, this emotion of regret is, again, it's a powerful emotion. It is, um, and, and this is what I'm trying to do here. There's a reason why I chose the title that I did, The Power of Regret, and why I didn't try to dance past the, the graveyard by not using the R word in the title. I use the R word in the title. I put it in big freaking capital letters right in the center because regret clarifies what we, what, what we value and it instructs us on how to do better. It's a powerful and transformative emotion if we treat it right. You said that you started to write the book. So it was gonna be one of my last couple of questions, but yeah. you started to write the book because you had shared with some folks the uh, a couple of regrets of yours and it sort of opened the floodgates, almost like if you're vulnerable with other people, they're more willing to be vulnerable with you. Right. Where's the line there though, to where yeah. you create a circle of uh, pity party with yeah, yeah, folks, yeah. right? Because you run, those of you that will Google Daniel, this man's had a, really a remarkable life and worked with remarkable people. Some of the most influential people that have ever been on our planet, he's worked with. And so that's sometimes I think contextually, hey, we're at this, not level, but we're having this dialogue that's based on a context of our lives. And I sort of think there's a line there where, you know, perhaps you start to create a circle of people who validate your regrets and you validate theirs. And then that's it's an interesting point. Circle. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that I think that is a danger. Um, I, I think it's a danger because because what you're doing there, I mean, what you're what you're what you're describing there is in some ways. I had never thought about this before until you describe it. But in some ways, what you're describing is kind of group rumination, Correct. not individual rumination, but kind of a collective rumination. And rumination is really bad for us. I mean, it really is when you're caught in that infinite loop of constant of, of, of thinking and thinking and thinking and revisiting and revisiting and revisiting. That is very, very harmful. There's nothing. I mean, truly, there's nothing good about rumination. Mm -hmm. And so what you're doing there is collective rumination. So in some ways, it's like a rumination contagion. You that is, it. by my ruminating, I basically contaminate you and you start ruminating. And so yeah. th th but this is why that process is really important, because when we treat ourselves with self-compassion, when we treat ourselves with kindness rather than contempt, when we disclose to make sense of it, when we draw a lesson from it, Bingo. what we're doing is we're, we're interrupting that march to rumination. That is, you can see our brains on this march toward rumination, but, what you, but, but this process builds a wall and you're like, oh, you're stuck. You're not gonna get over this wall. You're not gonna get through this wall. You're not gonna get around this wall because yes. we're not going to let you get all the way to rumination. We're going to convert it into something else. That's the power of it. It's the, for me, it's the, everything you said, but the lesson, if you're going to be in a group where you're doing this, uh, I was, I was yesterday. I flew back on a plane with some guys that are becoming new friends of mine. And we sort of, I, I, I told them I was going to be interviewing today. And so I phrased the question as some of your great life lessons come from something you regret. And each of us shared it, but what came with it was the lesson. And the lesson, Interesting. the lesson was illustrative for the rest of us, right? Bingo. That's a good way life. to do it. And, and, and they had had choices and decisions or lack of choices or decisions 
actions or inactions that I hadn't had. And that was valuable to me. A couple of them were much older than I was. And so to learn from kind yeah. of the wisdom of their experience. So just that fine line, everybody, of sharing this. So I got to tell you, were you going to say something about that? I don't want to interrupt. No, you. no, I, I, think it's, I think it's very interesting. I actually I sort of like the idea. I didn't, I didn't write about this, but it's an interesting way at it of talking about, I think in some cases it's smart to start from the lesson. And then yes. uh, it, for, for people who are a little bit more enlightened, for people who've done a better job at reckoning with their regrets, starting with the lesson is a good idea. Tell me a lesson you've learned and the regret that produced it. That's a really interesting way to do it. Yeah. I love this topic and I love your book. And, and here's hey, the reason why. I want, here's why I wanted to have you on and then I'll ask you one last question. There's nothing else like it. And it does sort of fly in the face of what I guess is conventional thinking and wisdom, which is don't ever look back. I get interviewed all the time. People ask me if you have any regrets. I say, of course I do, several of them. And it's, it's hopefully why I've grown. If I've done no self-reflection on my life. Exactly. La lack of self-reflection creates a complete lack of self-awareness in the present state. So this reflection creates awareness. There's an unhealthy way to do it, which is what Daniel talks about in the book. There's an incredibly healthy way to do it. And the other thing is this notion of, no, you hear people say, well, I don't regret anything because eh, I'm where I am because of all these events. How do you know that? How do you know that had you, that you extracted lessons from these things that you wouldn't be in a better place, you know, or the exact same place? You don't know that that's true because all these things happen that you're, you're where you are right now. That's just, that's just something people repeat that's got no validation to it. There's no study about it. There's no science behind it at all. So... So guys, it's okay to be looking back at your life and extract the lessons and the emotions. Powerful part of the book, as I said earlier, is on the anticipation of regret. I love what you said about becoming not too obsessed about that, but there's power of that. Will I regret this getting the ultimate version of me? All right, last question. And thank yes, you sir. in advance, brother. Um, and when you do another one of these, come back on because your work- I'll is, be back. It's, it's magic, man. Your work is magic. Um, and I love the parts about self-compassion and everything else. Aside from what we've covered, and someone right now is sitting here, they're listening to her, they met you at a Starbucks. They said, hey man, I loved your book, you know, but I'm sort of stuck. And you know, you and Ed Milet, you didn't cover this, you know, I'm sure there was something you wanted to say to everybody that he didn't ask you about regret, processing of regret, the power of it. And so I'm gonna give you that opportunity right now so they can't ask you that question. What did we not cover that I not ask you that you feel is really important everybody understands about the entire topic and the book, in the book or out of the book? Okay, I'll tell you one thing. Um, I actually think that it's important. I think one of the lessons of these regrets, particularly when you were, you know you were talking about which is bigger, inaction or action regrets, and inaction regrets to take over. I, I think there's actually something to be said in life for having a bias, a slight bias for action. Not in every single circumstance, but a bias for action, because what really gnaws at us over time is when we don't act, uh, when we don't ask out that crush, when we don't start that business, when we don't take that trip. Uh, and so a general bias for action. But the other reason for that is that sometimes I think we are, um, we try to plan too much. Um, we, we're trying to make a career transition or do, and we're like, okay, I got to plan it all out and plan it all out and plan it all out. And, and, and I think we've gotten the sequence wrong, like, that action is in some ways how we learn, that we learn by acting, that, that, that in some ways by doing something, we know what we learn more about what to do rather than, so, so I want to do a little less planning, a little bit more acting. Um, and I think that in general, it's the surprise takeaway for me in this in this stuff is that I, that I've tried to learn is that like you got to have a, just a bias for action for for trying stuff because um, you're less likely to regret that than you are not acting. But what's more is that acting 
is a form of learning. It's not separate from learning. It's a form of learning. Very good. I enjoyed today so much. Like we've never covered anything like this on the show. Good. And, and when you're in the inspirational uh, life strategy space, there is this bias towards never looking back. <laughs> and, and, and I want everybody to know this. I've said this before, but the context I've said it in is to go back and replay the video over and over again, which is probably not an accurate story, as Daniel said. Right. Probably added to it and extract no lessons from it and get no better from it. That's unhealthy. The way we're describing it and Daniel wrote about it is incredibly healthy, productive and growth oriented. And so thank you today, brother, very, very much for um, not only the time, but you know, the other thing, man, I just, you work, you work very hard when someone asks you a question to give the best possible answer you can. It's not autopilot. You're reflective even as you're answering. And I appreciate that indicates to me, you really want to help people and you're passionate about your work. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the great interview. I really, I, I enjoy talking to you. Thanks for making me think. Yeah, I, it made me think, and I know it's made millions of other people think, hey, everybody, if this helped you today, you have anybody you know that's dealing with any form of regret or they just want to grow and get better, they want to change their life, have them listen to this show, share it with them, fastest growing show on the planet for a reason. We doubled again the last 90 days because I get you people like Daniel and we get good stuff out of them every single time they're here. So by the way, you can get your hands on my new book too, The Power of One More. Go to thepowerofonemore.com, pre-order it. There's a huge reward and incentive in doing so. God bless all of you. Max out your life. This is The Ed Milet Show.